As, as Bill already noted, um, Luke 18, if you've been with us for a bit, should sound pretty familiar because it was preached on not that long ago. Um, and there are really three reasons that I, that I wanted it to, to come up again today. Um, first and probably smallest is that it's very relevant to what we're going to talk about. Um, probably the biggest deal is because it, I just laugh every time I hear that one. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and also just to, to, to try and give a sense of, of the continuity of what we've been talking about as we've been going through this series on prayer. Um, and that's actually something that's really, really struck me, especially this week as, as I prepared because um, this, this message, the, the preparation of it has not come easily to me at all, much like prayer often does not come easily to me. Um, and so I have... I have benefited greatly um, because I had to, I had to when, when Michael told me, okay, you're going to preach, we're still in a series on prayer, preach something about prayer, but other than that, go crazy. I had to go back through everything that he had preached on prayer and okay, you know, this has been done, don't do that again, this has been done, don't do that again, um, you know, and, and, and find something within the realm and sphere of prayer that we hadn't touched on yet. Um, and, and so I got to, to reacquaint myself with all of that and um, in trying to pull something meaningful um, and then and the really big challenge is try to make it somewhat coherent uh, I really got to practice um, those the the application of those previous messages uh, persistent prayer and prayer um, through through discouragement that was a big one um, so so there there's there's a purpose to these there they they worked in my life this week and so um, I suppose in some ways that's a, that's a plug for the website where old messages are. Feel free to listen to those. Um, uh, you, you, you can be the judge about whether or not this one has any um, value moving forward. But um, I, as, I, as I looked at the different kinds of prayer that we see um, throughout the Bible and the kinds we've, we've spoken about, there, were, there was one sort that I know I've always kind of just thumbed over and passed by quickly and said, oh, that's weird and interesting and I'm just going to forget it as quickly as I read it because I don't understand it. It makes me nervous. And that's, that's some of the imprecatory prayers. Those are the prayers where you're just going along and, you know, God, I'm very sad. God, you comfort me when I'm sad. And it's like, okay, we're, we're on the same page. And then, so now, God, kill all the bad people. And say, like, oh, that's that's awkward, um, you know. Um, but hey, it's the Old Testament; it gets a pass, right? Um, and 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 so, we, I, I don't know about you, but I've read those things, and, and and sometimes I've wrestled with them. But more than that, I've just moved on and filed it under, you know, oddity of the ancient world, um, and, and and let it be. And I I don't think there's a useless part of the Bible, um, so. I wanted to look at that a little closer. Now, we're going to be looking at Psalm 94 today. We could have gone harder. There are more imprecatory prayers. I wanted to do something that, that was not, not the, the hardest example in the Bible, but not too easy either. More, more for my own sake and yours. Um, and so, as we, as we look at these, these, these prayers that, that address outrage at injustice, um, and, and, then, and then we here in the present get kind of awkward around that. Um, it, it's a challenge to us and it's a discomfort to us. So, so I want us to look at that today and we're going to look at Psalm 94 because at the end of the day, I think the real question becomes, okay, 
we're not comfortable with this, well, how do we respond to injustice? Because this is, in several places, how the psalmist has responded to injustice with this outrage, with this request for God for recompense against his enemies. And if we don't like that, fine, how do we respond to injustice? What, what, what other options are there? Because I, I wonder if, to some extent, the, 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 the cry to God for justice is a diagnosis of exclusion. Um, having tried all other options, what other option remains but to cry out to God for justice against our enemies? Um, because all humanity throughout uh, every generation, every culture, every individual at some point has to wrestle with the reality of injustice and how they respond to it. Um, and the easiest and first and most common option, I think for us at least this day, is to just ignore it. You know, TV is really good these days. It wasn't as good in the ancient world, so we can actually ignore injustice just by changing uh, where we're looking at. And, and, but, but in the past, there's, every culture, like I said, has had um, the, the need to, to ask, okay, well, there's all this bad stuff happening around us. Well, how do we deal with it? Uh, the, the writer Rousseau observed that man is born free, and yet everywhere he is in chains. Um, the, the, the ancient Greek philosophers wrote so much on justice. It was the, it was, I don't know, like the, the, the page-turning novels of the day. You know, oh, Aristotle wrote something else on justice. I've pre-ordered it. Um, and, you know, they wrote, they, they wrote essays. Well, what is it in its essence? Does it even exist? How does it operate? What kind of government might usher injustice and, and theory and possibility and ac high academia on the, the question of justice? Plato wrote like a 900 book um, called The Republic that was really just all about trying to create a just society and how would that even even be possible, and, and he came to the conclusion that, okay, well, what you would need is a bunch of impossible things that don't exist, but if you did, it would be great. Uh, and, and of course, that's, that's, the, that's the theoretical side of it. There's a practical side, too, you know, when people seek for justice, it, because I think, in, especially in the 20th century recently, we had a, a slew of, of governments and people saying, no, we know what justice is, and, and we can make it happen. We just have to remake the world a little bit. Um, Mind the mass graves, you can fall into them. Um, and so, how do we respond to injustice? How do we usher in justice? What is justice? Because humanity throughout its, its long and storied history has spilled both rivers of ink and rivers of blood in pursuit of justice. Um, and as we look around the present day and age, it would seem that without, it's been done without much to show for it. Now, the people in ancient Israel, God's people, the, the people um, alive and, and living at the time when the income, this psalm was fresh, were, of course, no strangers to injustice. Um, we're well acquainted with the grief that is brought on by the presence of violent, hate-filled, implacable enemies um, who can't be reasoned with or uh, convinced that uh, shouldn't we all just get along. Um, so it, it was a harder time, and I think... Um, from our position of incredible uh, blessing and plenitude and safety, it's very easy to say, well, you just sound mean when you want bad things to happen to the people who killed your family. Uh, so um, there's, there's, there is an edge to these older psalms, and, and um, God's people 
being well acquainted with danger and grief and oppression and injustice on all sides throughout all of their history, enslaved in the time of the Exodus, uh, oppressed in the time of the judges, at war, at the threat of war throughout the entirety of the reigns of their kings with a few quiet moments of peace. Um, it's, it's not an abnormality in the ancient Israelite experience to say injustice is on the move, bad things are happening. So I want to read Psalm 94 to you. Um, and share with you this, this prayer, this cry to God for justice in the face of the world's injustice. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see, and the God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from the days of trouble, until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people, he will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will wipe them out. We, we pray for justice because God is a just judge and he is our only hope for true and lasting justice. We, we pray for justice from God because he is the just judge and he is our only hope for true and lasting justice. Because there's a tension between the cry for justice, outrage at evil, and, and also this, this other concept that we see in this very same psalm of, of comfort, of rest, um, in, in giving and in bringing injustice before God and saying, God, um, deal with this, avenge my case. Um, because we, we have this, this outrage, this anger, this, this one intense emotional state, and then we have something apparently at, at the polar end saying, you know, comfort, rest. So how are these two uh, diametrically opposed things reconciled? Um, because they're brought together in the psalm, they're both expressed here, and I think that we see that they're joined and reconciled by the, the certainty that God will act and that he is a just judge. The, the first observation that I, I think is necessary to make here is just to point out that we, we pray for justice because the world is presently an unjust place. 
Um, and that might seem like the mother of all unnecessary statements. Um, life's unfair, really? This message brought to you by Captain Obvious. Um, and, and, and to some extent that's true, but um, among the many, many things that, that people have done to deal with injustice is we've kind of dulled ourselves to the presence of it. Um, not, not every philosophical outlook in the world actually says that the world is an unjust place. And we'll look at that a little bit more in a minute, but I, I do want to make the case that the world is in fact an unfair place. Um, and again, in, in our present country at this present time, we are the people most excused for thinking that maybe the world's not such a bad place um, because we have it pretty good. Not perfect, but good. Uh, and so when we look at slavery, I, I think a lot of times we'll think, oh, isn't that that bad thing that we did a while ago? Oh, we're bad. Um, and, and it was wrong, but the, the absence of slavery is a historical anomaly, um, only unique to certain parts of the world right now, and timeline-wise, a drop in the bucket um, in the human experience. Slavery is normal. Not slavery is this weird thing the kids are doing these days, and we'll see if they stick with it. Um, and by the same token, just corruption in, in, in government. And we can, we can go and get a building permit, and it's a pain in the backside because you need to file all these forms and do all these things. And, and it's, it's this time-consuming, tedious legal process, but it's not, okay, do we have a big enough bribe to pay the clerk? It's not, do we know the right people to even get a hearing before the civil authorities? Um, Corruption, bribery, for even the most basic civil services, again, is a normal thing today in many parts of the world and throughout all of human experience, pretty much the norm. Uh, actually, the, the, the Roman historian Tacitus once noticed as he was going through a village that they had a memorial, up, a plaque up to a, a tax collector because he didn't lie, cheat, or steal. It was like, honest tax collector, and they, they had to put up a statue over that, which is interesting. <laughs> um, so that might give you an idea of what constitutes normal in the ancient world. And so if, if evil, if unfairness, if injustice is in fact the norm of the present world, the question becomes, well, how do we respond to it? And that, that brings us back to where we're at. And what I, the point I was trying to make about this, this outrage at evil, this, this saying no evil ought not to be, God needs to do something about it, something needs done about it, it's wrong, is in some ways a diagnosis of exclusion because if we don't like, if we're uncomfortable with the emotional intensity of saying, God, rise up, oh God, of vengeance, shine forth, God, repay, well, how, what do we do if not that? What are our other options? If we look at the world and say, okay, it's a place full of evil, the, the first and easiest thing I suppose we could do is just say, okay, well, let's win at the game of evil. Let's out-evil the other guys. Let's evil them first. Somebody's going to be getting stepped on. I might as well be the one wearing the shiny shoes doing the crushing. Um, that's one option. Um, lots of people do that. Not many people will be open and upfront and say that out loud, but it does happen. Um, you can try and dress that idea up a little bit and just say, well, utilitarianism or something functional like that, functional morality, the, the greatest good for the greatest number of people, which is just a fancy way of saying, we're going to get five friends and then we're going to win at evil against three people. Um, so it, it kind of circles back on itself. Or you can do positional ethics and say, okay, the world is unjust. It might seem that way to you from where you're at, um, but it, it's really just 
another person in another situation, seeing things from a different point of view, a sort of one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter view of things, which kind of just boils back to, okay, well, which side is, is winning at being unfair to the other? And, and really, those are all just variations on a theme, I suppose. You could do something quite different from that and just take the, the somewhat bolder position and say, well, actually, evil doesn't even exist. Um, you're imagining that. And that might sound weird and outrageous to us, but that's actually the majority of Eastern religions, um, that, that, that our perception of evil is really just us clinging too tightly to the material world, which is a lie anyway, so nothing bad ever happens. Uh, calm down. Now, that... Um, and, and that works for some people. They, 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 they go with that. It's, it doesn't really mesh with what we experience terribly well. You know, and we might just implicitly reject that because we're Westerners and that's just so different to our ways of thinking. Um, but even if, even if we're seduced by that idea and we say, okay, maybe I could buy into that. Maybe I can tame. I can take the sting out of injustice by saying, you know, it's not such a big deal because none of this matters anyway. It's all, it's all an illusion. It's all a fabrication. Um, and, and our minds can believe that, but our hearts certainly struggle with it, especially when we're subjected to evil. Um, there's a, in the 1800s, there was a, a Japanese Buddhist poet by the name, who went by the pen name Isa, um, and, and he, he was a good proper Buddhist, and, but he, he was a man who experienced great tragedy in his life, and he, he, he had a young wife, and their first child died, and then their second child died, and then his wife died, and every time he went to the, the, the Buddhist masters for comfort, they'd say, the world is due. The world is passing away, essentially. The world is, you know, it's ending. It's like, don't worry, it doesn't matter. And, 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 and this struggle was kind of immortalized in this little haiku he wrote saying, the world is due, and yet, and yet. Um, because there was something in that father's heart, at least, saying, okay, sure, yeah, the world is, is due. Everything is, is fading away. It doesn't matter. It's all an illusion. And yet it still hurts, and yet injustice is still wrong. There's a, there's a certain courage, I think, to arguing that evil shouldn't exist. Um, because it requires looking at the world as it is, full of injustice, full of evil, business as usual, as bad things happening to people for no particularly good reasons. And, and to come onto the scene of that and say, actually, yes, it, the world is presently an unjust place, but it ought not be, is, is in some ways turning our perceptions of reality upside down. It's saying, this is what you've seen, this is all you've ever seen, but it's actually not how things are supposed to be. And, and that's a sense we get from the outrage over evil that we see in this psalm and elsewhere in the Bible. I want to just briefly look at the first seven verses of it with you again, just to, to refresh, because I, I think more than anything that focuses on this, we, we see the psalmist uh, invoking God in his role as the God of vengeance, as the one who uh, avenges the case of the unjustly persecuted. And they're calling for him to rise up. And, and, and more than anything in these first seven, I see a lot of verbs. I see action words. Because well, what are the wicked doing? Well, they're pouring forth their proud words. And that's an interesting word in the Greek just because it it's, it's like a torrent, it's like an outpour, it's like they're, they're, they're vomiting out with no restraint their, their arrogance and their blasphemies. There's, there's nothing holding them back, it's just issuing out. And what are they doing? Well, they're afflicting, they're crushing, they're killing, they're murdering. There's, there's activity happening, and so what does the psalmist pray for? He prays for 
verbs from God. He says, God, rise up. God, repay. Because the image we see in these first seven verses is an image of completely unrestrained, rampant evil doing what it wants and, and laughing about it, completely unhindered by any sense of morality or shame. In fact, in laughing at anyone who would be restrained by morality or shame, the Lord does not see and the God of Jacob does not perceive. There is no justice, there is no God, and he doesn't hear if he were there and he doesn't care what we're doing and no one is going to stop us. And, and I have to wonder, well, Thinking about that, considering that, considering the harm being done there, knowing that, that orphans and widows and, and the, the most defenseless, the, the foreigners in a foreign land, are being murdered by these people, do we have the ability to summon just a little outrage of our own, even though we're all very Western and modern and comfortable? Is there any part of us that reacts to that with any kind of visceral outrage? Do we have the moral courage to be outraged by what is inherently outrageous? Um, C.S. Lewis once wrote about an experience he had um, early during the Second World War. Um, he, he fought in the first one. He was an, a, a little older and, uh, during the second one, and he was riding in a train car and sharing it with a, a group of, of young soldiers that were um, about the business of the Second World War. And, and he wrote... He was listening, overhearing what they were saying, and, and, he, and he recorded, their conversation made it clear, this is the, the young soldiers he was sharing the car with, their conversation made it clear that they totally disbelieved all that they had read in the papers about the wholesale cruelties of the Nazi regime. They took it for granted without argument that this was all lies, all propaganda put up by our own government to pep up the troops. And the shattering thing was that believing this, they expressed not the slightest anger that our rulers should falsely attribute the worst of crimes to some of their fellow men so that they might induce some of their other fellow men to shed their blood seemed to them a matter of course. They weren't even particularly interested. They saw nothing wrong in it. Now, it seemed to me that the most violent of the psalmists, or for that matter, any child wailing, but it's not fair, was in a more hopeful condition than these young men. If they had perceived and felt as a man should feel the diabolical wickedness which they believed our rulers to be committing and then forgiven them, they would have been saints. But to not perceive it at all, not even to be tempted to resentment, to accept it as the most ordinary thing in the world argues a terrifying insensibility. Clearly these young men had on that subject anyway no conception of good and evil whatsoever. I wonder for us if, if we have become so jaded um, by, by the deceit that's rampant in our culture. Because Lewis is getting a little further back from the modern era now. Um, but I don't think our pr culture's propensity for telling the truth has improved since his day and age. And I wonder if, if our familiarity with being lied to, lied at, possibly lying to others, and, and just the, the, the normalization of, of so much injustice around us that, well, it's not such a big deal. Well, this is normal. Well, this happens all the time. If, if we've become jaded to the point where not only are we no longer outraged when we see the common evils and injustices of our day, but we, we attempt to outsmug one another and how much we're not moved by it. 
um, I've certainly been there, because you can earn a reasonable amount of street cred in a, in a social situation by not being surprised when something terrible happens and being like, yep, saw that coming, people suck. Um, that's actually how I convince people I have the power to see the future. I just assume the worst. Um, the, there's an there's old story, and it's debatable whether it happened or not. It might have just been propaganda, but the story goes that when Rome caught fire, the Emperor Nero uh, fiddled while it happened and watched the city burn. Now, we know historically that's not possible because the fiddle wasn't invented yet. He might have liared while it burned. Um, uh, but I, I, I just wonder, I, I see this image of, of, of a modern equivalent where, where Nero is playing on his smartphone while the city burns around him. <laughs> and, and I wonder, in our own society, in our own day and age, in our own cities, um, is, is injustice, are those who frame injustice by statute, as it says in uh, one of the verses, <laughs> uh, 20, uh, are we, are we, Distracted? Are we jaded? Are we not paying attention while orphans and, and widows and sojourners are oppressed, afflicted, crushed, and killed? Now, the uh, I want to do a little bit of a caveat here because you know I'm, I'm making the argument. Let's get mad, and that's very easy to do, and it's very easy to feel self-righteous. It's like, okay, I'm outraged at injustice. I'm going to go out there and be very upset about the things that I don't like and the bad things done to me. Because uh, I think it's noteworthy that in this psalm, the psalmist isn't saying just you know, oh God, I I I don't like these people. I find them weird. Uh, he he addresses to God those things that God has specifically pointed out repeatedly throughout Scripture as, as points of interest to him. Uh, widows and the fatherless and sojourners are singled out because God had specifically singled those people out as the recipients of his protection, as the people that the society in ancient Israel was supposed to afford not equal treatment to, special treatment to, extra attention to, extra defense to. Um, and so when we say, okay, let's, let's get good and properly outraged about evil, I think we need to make sure that we are calibrating our outrage, not to what bugs me or what I don't like or what would make my life more comfortable, but what outrages the heart of God. And I think we see that maybe our personal politics uh, won't always line up with that, but it's a wonderful opportunity to be corrected and see what actually is close to God's heart rather than what we're clinging to with our own selfish one. God's outrage at evil, I think, threatens our complacency. Um, we're kind of comfortable. We're very comfortable people, generally speaking, in the grand sweep of history. And I can't help but wonder if our, our little bit of unease with these imprecatory psalms is simply a result of the fact that we know that God's outrage at evil, that this, this refusal to accept injustice is going to rock the boats of our comfort a little bit. So we pray for justice because the world is presently an unjust place. That's the, that's the angry side of this. And then there's that other emotion, the, the, the comfort, the, the peace that comes. And so on that I say that the, the approach doesn't change. We're still praying for justice, but we pray for it because God's justice is a comfort to the righteous. So, I mean, if, if, we, if we accept wholesale 
everything I just muttered about um, and say, okay, yay, good job, we're good and mad, we're angry, we're furious, let's grab our pitchforks, light our torches, and storm the castle of badness. Um, what does that look like for us? And, and a lot of times it just means turning on the news and watching until you have a heart attack and dying. <laughs> okay, I'm mad and full of impotent rage and frustrated and now very unpleasant to be around. You know these people, you probably go to Thanksgiving with them. <laughs> And so, by means of mitigation, I just want to quote really quickly from James 1, 19 through 20. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Um, I, I think James has a point there. We can get outraged at evil and, and, and all of these things, but when we get good and mad, I question how effective that is for eradicating injustice because in my personal experience um, angry human attempts to create justice uh, end up having the opposite of the intended effect um, because the world has there, there's a crushing weight the accumulation of evil in the world uh, even just in the day-to-day -day. if you if you open yourself if you if you step away from those um, various self-medications of saying, oh, well, evil doesn't really exist, or, oh, I'm just going to win at evil. Um, if, you, if you don't mitigate the tension of injustice's existence by some kind of philosophy or theory or just disengagement that allows you to, to deaden the, the raw pain of all the evil around you, the, the most likely result is that you'll burn out, go crazy, or, or do something drastic to try and make it go away. Um, because if, if, we, if we view the darkness around us full in the face, it's overwhelming. We, we don't have the ability to respond to it, to stop it, to improve it positively, and it, we can be crushed under the weight of the darkness around us. We can try and usher in utopia. It's a pipe dream. It never works, but maybe we just need to try it a little bit differently this time. Um, I think that one appeals to people just because it puts them in the position of God. God's supposed to bring justice. But people think, no, I'll just do God's job and I'll do it better. Um, and surprise, surprise, when people do that, uh, it doesn't end well. In fact, there's 100 million dead people just from one philosophy of we're going to make utopia in the last 100 years alone. Um, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So I, I, think, I think we see that. So, and, and this is, this is a sort of negative case I'm making for God's justice being a comfort to the righteous because when we see man's attempt at justice, we go, hmm, that's not working so well. We're again left with this diagnosis of exclusion. Well, what do we do? If we're not going to ignore injustice, if we're not going to philosophize it away, um, if we're not just going to ignore it and stay drugged by our entertainment culture, well, what do we do about it? Do we try to fix it? You can. History says it doesn't work. <laughs> and uh, actually, one of the the, the ancient Roman philosophies uh, were called the Stoics, and, and Paul actually talks to them in Athens. So they've been around for a while. There's modern variants, though. It's just, well, maybe maybe how we respond to evil is is not to ignore it, not to pretend it's not there, but to endure it stoically, keep a stiff upper lip. Close your eyes, think of England, uh, and, and just deal with it. Um, you know, you're, you're, 
your manly fortitude in the face of ongoing impression, the, the solid trudging through the sadness of life. Well, it stinks, it's unfair, but no one's going to say I whined about it. Um, I'm a stoic. And, um, and, and, and I think that's, that's another option that we might come to, you know, before, before we're forced to do the icky thing and, and that the psalm suggests and, and give it to God and be comforted by that. We, we might just try to shoulder it ourselves in this sort of bland way. Um, and, and actually the reformer John Calvin said something that, that really struck me about that. He said about that sort of mindset, uh, a true patience does not consist in presenting an obstinate resistance to evils or in that unyielding stubbornness which passed as a virtue with the Stoics, but in a cheerful submission to God based upon confidence in his grace. And, and he went on to say, even supposing a man should bear his trials without a tear or a sigh, yet if he champ the bit in sullen hopelessness, if he only hold by such principles as these, we are mortal creatures. It is vain to resist necessity and strive against fate, or fortune is blind. Um, for the Dave Ramsey fans, it's you're always going to have a car payment. Little guy can never get ahead. <laughs> Calvin didn't say that. Uh, this is obstinacy rather than patience, and there is concealed opposition to God in this contempt of calamities under the color of fortitude. Um, have you ever stepped into the home of a crazy cat lady slash hoarder? Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Some of us have lived there. Um, even if you haven't been, would you guess that there's a smell involved? There is. You know who doesn't notice the smell? The crazy cat lady, because she's gotten used to it. She lives there. And if we do not resolve the tension of evil in our lives if we, if, if we open ourselves up to acknowledging the injustice in the world around us and we do not find a way of, of acclimating to that reality, we will fall back into one of those philosophies. We will find some means of engaging it or we will just get used to it and become comfortable with the evil around us. We will just endure it because we will at some point weary of the fight of noticing the darkness around us or just it'll drive us crazy but that's again that we we seek comfort in in in, in madness rather than stare uh, the, the moral insanity of evil in the face on on a continual basis so how do we resolve that tension how do we find a way forward that doesn't take us back that doesn't get us off track that doesn't drive us nuts and, and the answer is very clearly in this psalm, well, we give it to God. God's justice is a comfort to the righteous. In verses 12 through 19, we see, well, blessed is the man who you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. The scriptures are a consolation to us. We read God's word and we see who he is and what he's promised in there. Um, and we draw comfort from that. And we see that That, um, that, that God gives us rest from days of trouble. That, that we are being kept, that we are being guarded, that he is giving us refreshment, not just the rest we're waiting for when, when Christ returns or, or, or when we abscond from this mortal coil, but a day by day 
rest and refreshment and hope and comfort that comes from continually bringing the evil we see around us to God um, and, and submitting it to his justice and saying, God, you are the just judge and you are our only hope for a true and lasting justice and, and bringing those things before him. Because I think that's how we resolve that, that dilemma where there's evil around us, we can't fix it. If we don't want to define it away by, by careful wordplay, we're left bringing it before the one good judge that there is. I, I, I again feel obligated to make another clarification, just as I did on the previous point where I say, get good and mad, but hey, you know, consider James 1.19. Um, and here, in the same course, I... I, I think of the, the old problem of pietism, the idea that, you know, God's got it, there's nothing left for us to do, we're good. Um, and I don't think that's the point, I don't think we see that here, I don't think we see that anywhere, really, in the Bible. We don't see someone in the ditch and say, well, God's responsible for justice, good luck for you, buddy. Um, uh, Romans 13 is actually really clear. It, it talks about um, the biblical role of government and actually says that the government is, is when it's fulfilling its God-ordained role, it's a terror to bad conduct. It, it, does, it does not wield the sword in vain. Uh, government doing its job actually executes, it models God's righteous justice on evil. Um, there's a place for that in human activity. And so, you know, when I say we need to give evil to God, we need to rest in the comfort of his judgment, by all means, let us continue to be good citizens wherever we find ourselves. And we should rejoice when, through the common grace of government, God does bring a measure of justice to um, the evil world around us. But let us not put our hope there. Um, let's not uh, anticipate the final death stroke against evil to take place through people banding together and deciding that badness is bad and it really ought to stop, um, or in getting the right people in office or the right laws passed, um, our hope is somewhere else. And, and that's actually something that was a big, uh, a big turnaround for me. Um, I'm, I'm setting up my home office right now, and so I'm pulling out piles of books and, and I'm trying to organize them on shelves where they belong. And I ended up with this giant stack of political books and I realized, wow, I have a lot of political books. And I was looking through those and I realized, I don't like these anymore or care about them. Why? Well, A, those things age. They're talking about things that, you know, were issues five, you know, years ago. Um, But more than anything, I, I know for me, for, the very, for a very long time, I was very, very, very into politics. I followed it very closely. I bought those books. I read blogs. I watched the news. Um, I was one of those people you didn't want at Thanksgiving. Um, maybe now for the same reason, but just, or maybe same deal, but for different reasons. Um, but, but it was a big deal. And, and any time something didn't go well, any time uh, a vote went poorly or the wrong person got in, it was, a, it was a mortal blow. It was a critical strike to me. It was a big deal. The, the sky was falling every single time. And at some point I realized that that was happening because that was where my hope was. Um, every, I was waiting for our civil society, our laws, our infrastructure to make justice happen, to, to bring peace, for, to make my world be okay. Um, and that's why anything going wrong was such a big deal because they weren't just filling an office or passing a law I didn't like. They were striking at my very core for hope. Um, in First uh, Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, uh, Peter says, humble 
yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And I, and I wonder if that's uh, uh, just a New Testament version of, of kind of what we're seeing here. Verse 15 says, Justice will return to the righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. Do we have the courage to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God to wait for his true and lasting justice without trying to force our own version of it? Can we let go of both ethical passivity and the need to insist on avenging ourselves um, on our own behalf for uh, and, and in our own way? So we pray for justice. We pray because the world is an unjust place and we pray because God's justice is a comfort to the righteous because we know when we give it to him that he has shoulders broad enough to bear it, um, that it's his job, not ours, and he'll do it right and we'll screw it up, so we're just going to back off this particular project. <laughs> um, and so if we buy both of those things, if we say, okay, that's true, one question must inevitably result. Well, okay, well then how long, O oh Lord? Because if, if we have submitted to the judgment, the ruling of the just judge, and we are wise to do so, anything else is insanity, we then ask, okay, God, this, the, the ball is in your court as it should be. We recognize that things are bad. How long, O oh Lord, must we wait? And then we see this here. We, it's actually repeated. O oh Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? It's, it's kind of the... It's a, it's a question that humanity has asked for a long time, and it's really a question we see throughout the entire Bible, from, from Abel's spilled blood in Genesis to the cry of the martyrs under the throne in Revelation, cover to cover in the Bible, and darn near every, every human atrocity soaked page in between. How long, O oh Lord, before you avenge? How long before you exterminate injustice? And, and this is actually the, the sad old atheist argument. You've, you've probably heard it a billion and five times. Um, but you know, well, okay, you say God's good and you say God is powerful. Well, if he was good and powerful, then there would be no bad things. But there are bad things, ergo no God. Um, and, and, and really, if it feels like an old argument in our modern time, it's at least as old as the 94th Psalm because we, we have the bad people saying, here, the Lord doesn't see it and the God of Jacob does not perceive. Nothing's happening. People mistake God's restraint in unleashing judgment and his mercy and his desire to give them time to repent as, as carte blanche that there is no justice and it will never come. We see the response in uh, 8 through 11, understand, O oh, dullest of people, actually I think in the King James they call them stupid, which is awesome. Um, Fools, when will you be wise? And, and he points out, God made your ears, do you think he doesn't hear the cries of the oppressed? God formed your eyes, do you think he doesn't see what you're doing when you think there are no witnesses or you've killed them all? God who, who directs the course of nations, who punishes evil nations, who, who rises some up to judge others, he who directs the course of history, do you think that you as an individual are going to escape justice? That's another thing uh, John Calvin wrote, and I forget exactly how he put it, but it was beautiful. It's the, the height of madness to think that you as an individual will escape when nations perish. 
God who teaches man knowledge itself. He knows their thoughts. Do you, do you think that there's even a, a bad thought that you've had an evil plot that you've made but you never had the guts to follow through on? Do you think that has escaped the knowledge of God? And the answer is no, it has not. Who can escape that judgment? The answer is no one. And it's actually another one of the kind of hardcore manly parts of the Bible that talks about the judgment of God and, and talks about, okay, the people in the city are going to fall by the sword, but some people are going to run to the countryside and they're going to get eaten by animals and some people will hide in the mountains and the caves and you know what? Pestilence will take them. There's no getting away from it. <laughs> there is no escaping the judgment of God. And again, I think that's where we start to get nervous again. Really? That's, un that's scary. That's the sticky point because for us, we, if, okay, we're going to pray for God to bring justice, but we see and we recognize that on some level, a pray for the coming of God's justice is a prayer for destruction, and that scares us. God's justice is supposed to be a comfort for the righteous, and I think on some level we recognize, is that us? There's... It's, it's probably just heaviest there in verse 23. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. And that's frightening. And that's, that's unnerving. And do we, do we want anyone to be destroyed? Can we seriously, and while, while not even, even stepping aside from just, you know, modern milk toast discomfort with violence, even just as, as believers in grace and mercy, people who have been touched by the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, can we, in good conscience, pray for God's justice knowing it will mean destruction? And, and that's, I think, the core of the principled difficulty with the imprecatory psalms. And I go back to the diagnosis of exclusion. I ask, all right, there is some difficulty here. Well, what do we do with it? God, don't judge. God, don't bring justice. Let evil stand. Let the bodies keep piling up. Let darkness reign for a thousand more years. Because I, I think when we, when we say, you know, God, I'm not comfortable with you judging. You're not a good enough judge. You're not just enough. You're not right. You don't have this. I'm going to take it back. Because... I don't trust you. I think I'm more compassionate than you are, God. I think I know more. I'm wiser. You formed the eye and the ear and you know the thoughts of man, but I'm not sure I can trust you with the judgment of people because I'm just a little nicer and a little bit more compassionate than you. We might not put it that way, but I think there's a core of that, that ugly thought hiding behind our objection. In uh, Ezekiel 18, there's a a beautiful passage where God's talking to Ezekiel and, and, and people are complaining and they're saying, you know, God, you're mean. God, you're not just. You're, Ezekiel's telling us that you're going to destroy us because we're bad. That's not fair. And, and God kind of responds. and He says, you're, you're saying that I'm not just Israel? You're not just. That, that's why we're having this conversation. You're doing all of these terrible things. I don't want anybody to die. That's why I'm telling you to change. I, God, and it specifically says God does not uh, desire the death of anyone. And, and so that, that whole section ends by God saying, so turn and live. We don't care more than God does. It's, it's ludicrous to say so. And when we say it out loud, it, it doesn't sound as, as possible it does when we're just thinking it and just looking at the imprecatory psalms and feeling vaguely uncomfortable. 
look at point, the, the, those first two points, that the world is an unjust place and that, and that God's justice is a comfort to the righteous. And if we hold those in our hands, we have to ask, well, if God doesn't bring justice, then what? What are our other options? Back to Lewis again. He, in, in his reflections on the Psalms, I think he made a, a point that's kind of at the core of this, especially... Um, there's, there's two judicial metaphors, two courtroom images that the Bible uses quite a bit. Um, and they're both in the Bible, they're both represented, but I think we as Christians, we're really familiar with one of them, and that's that God is the judge, and we are the defendant, and it's a criminal case, and, and we're on trial. Uh, and our hope, and so we're, we're, we're kind of afraid of God's justice, because we know that by a straight reading of the laws, uh, we're done for, and, and Satan is our accuser. And we hope and rest totally on pardon by the grace of Christ. And that's true, and again, that's represented in the Bible. New and Old Testament, actually. Um, one of the minor prophets has an, an amazing story that's in that judicial metaphor, where um, God gives righteousness to the high priest because um, he, he has none of his own and he cannot resist the accusations of Satan. Um, but there is a second judicial metaphor, and I think it's one we're less familiar with, and it's, it's the biggest one throughout the Old Testament, and that is, yes, God is the judge, but it's a civil case. And the righteous, God's people, are the plaintiff. And they have an airtight case. The law is on their side. Evil is in the wrong. God's people are in the right. And all they need is someone to hear their case. All they need is a judge that will listen to their plea for justice because it's clear cut. The world is an unjust place. And, but again, think, think of the ubiquity, the normalcy of evil and unfairness and corruption throughout the world because getting a judge who would hear your case was usually a question of, of money or political connections. And that's, that's what we see in Luke 18. Um, that the unjust judge is the norm. And so, you know, people, God's people have been waiting for a just judgment to be rendered against the evil around them, to set right everything that's set wrong. And so, Instead of fearing God's judgment, looking at it in this light, we see, well, God's judgment is what we're waiting for. It's, it's, we have been waiting for judgment from a just judge, and if only someone would hear our unanswerable case, we'll finally be granted justice. And when God comes, when Jesus returns, that case will at last be heard. Do we want evil to stand? Because I'm not going to tell you at the end of this, that I'm 100% comfortable with every hard verse in the Bible. I still wrestle with them. I'm sure you will, too. I don't have any illusion that I'm going to, to completely solve the challenge of the hardness um, in, in God's justice. But I can say that what other options are there? Do we, do we accept that the ground is cursed with thorns and just roll with it in every tragedy that, is, that has come forward from that? Do we just say, well, sometimes kids have to die in labor? Do we say that, that injustice just is, that people die, that it's the law and it's not going to change? Do we just roll with it or do we reject it and say evil ought not be 
and plead our case to the just judge. Because God has announced his answer to evil, and it's, it's not maybe as tame as we would like, but it comes from one who is good, and it's that evil will be wiped out completely and decisively. And that is terrifying. Uh, the, the old Greeks had, had a story of, of the hero Hercules, and, and you've probably heard this or seen this um, visualized a, a million times with the story of his fight with the Hydra. Now, actually, in the old stories, when you read them, he's not using a sword and chopping off heads. He's using a club, and he's clubbing off heads, which actually makes it more awesome. Uh, <laughs> So, fun fact for the day. But the, the story of the Hydra is this dragon with many heads, and he's sent to fight it because it's terrorizing this village. And he clubs off one head, and two grow in its place. And he's like, oh, this is not working. And so eventually he gets a buddy, and the buddy will, Hercules will knock off one head, and the guy will torch the stump so that they don't grow back. And it's this, this long, epic battle where it's one step forward, two steps back, one step forward, two steps back. And eventually they think, okay, we've got this managed. And it turns out that the, the middle head is immortal, unkillable, can't be stopped. And so, using his titular Herculean strength, he triggers a landslide that crushes it, contains it, but it's not dead, it's still down there. And it's going to come back. And I, and I can think of, of no more useful metaphor for our human efforts to eradicate sin. Um, we can try and knock it out, and it'll usually just come back worse. We can do a scorched earth policy and think maybe we've got it tamed. Um, but we can't kill it, it's still there. Maybe we can bury it as deep as we can and it'll be gone for a while, but it's still there infesting the ground um, with, with the curse that's walked the earth since the days of Adam. And God has said that his answer to injustice is not a half measure, it's not a delay, it's not, well, let's see if, if we could just give it a little bit more time. God has announced that one day evil will end, death will die. But he has waited, and he does wait. And so we say, how long, O Lord? And the answer is given to us pretty clearly in Second Peter. And I won't quote a chapter and verse, but God's delay is because of his mercy. He wants everyone to come to repentance. In uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 21-26, Paul writes, for as, a man, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then in his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God and the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. In verse 17? No. I lied. Verse 21. The psalmist says that the wicked, they, they band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. And we see that no more clearly than in the death of Christ because if we're brutally honest with ourselves, apart from him there is an unrighteous and apart from him there was none innocent. But because he submitted himself to the world's justice, or more to the point, the world's injustice, that he acquiesced to a show of a trial presided over by unjust judges who ought to have known better. That he submitted himself to the world's authority in the form of Rome and justice and submitted himself to the ultimate injustice 
on our behalf that through him God might bring true and lasting justice to the world as our just judge and savior. Because we are among the righteous in Christ. We are counted among the innocent. And so we can come before God in Christ not as criminal defendants in, in a trial for our lives, although we will pass through that and, and emerge on the other side by the righteousness of Jesus, but then we can come before the just judge as civil plaintiffs with our case against the injustice of the world and receive from the hand of God the hope we've been waiting for, the, the end of all evil, the making of all things new, the the return of Christ and the renewal of ourselves and this broken and dying world. And that's the justice we pray for. We pray, come Lord Jesus, set right what has gone wrong. And we pray for our enemies that they will turn and they will repent and that they will experience that righteousness with us. Because God has appointed a day of judgment. And he has appointed Christ Jesus to judge the world. And when he comes, may we be found in him. Let us pray. O God the Father, from days of old you have directed the affairs of men. You have instructed us how to live and how to be and we have turned against you at every point, and you have shown us mercy upon mercy and forgiveness upon forgiveness, and still the world goes its own reckless way. And God, we have been part of that, we have contributed to that, and in many ways we still continue to do so. We have disobeyed and we have run roughshod over the rights of the most vulnerable. We've let our egos and our passions and our preferences guide our feet and not submitted to your righteous law. God, we thank you that in Christ we are forgiven. We thank you that you are a just judge and a merciful one. And that through you and by you we can have hope that there will be an end to the darkness around us. That there will be a cessation of the strife and the sorrow that has marked and haunted the days of man. God, we pray that, that hearts will turn to you, that they will accept and embrace your offer of mercy and reconciliation through Christ, that we will submit ourselves anew every day to your justice, and that we will, that we will look to your coming with awe and joy and expectation, that we will wait for you and be comforted by the knowledge that you are a good father and a just judge. God, we pray these things to you in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.